they've said no to division within our constitution along the lines of race. They've said no to the gaslighting, to the bullying, to the manipulation. They've said no to grievance uh, and, and, and the push from activists to suggest that we are a racist country when we are absolutely not a racist country. Well, thank you, Jacinta Nampa-Jimpa-Price, for giving us permission to again be proud of this great nation. No one is saying we're a perfect nation or that suffering does not exist or that more work does not need to be done to help people who are in need. Of course it does. But we are not what the Yes campaign in the voice referendum implied and just plain often asserted that we are racist, unkind and have done the wrong thing. Saturday's vote was in no way against Indigenous people. There has never been a deeper reservoir of goodwill towards our Indigenous brothers and sisters. So let's try and make sense of what just happened. Nothing epitomised the two Australias exposed in the voice referendum more than the Tesla drivers pulling up at pre-poll last week. Now, I, I grew up in regional Queensland, but watching well-heeled people on the teal north shore of Sydney who think they are saving the planet, then attempting to also save the Aboriginals was a revelation. Decked out in my no T-shirt and cap, several of these people asked with faux sincerity why I was voting no. Now, while my fellow no volunteers and I at St. Leonard's and Willoughby might have felt we were getting smashed all last week, the rejection of the woke worldview at the ballot box by a thumping 62 to 38 majority will genuinely shock these people. Undeterred, they will agree with the Indigenous elites running the Yes campaign that no voters must now go and reflect on their racism. Having insisted that the voice was not about treaty, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was hedging all week in Parliament. Clearly, he just doesn't get it. Neither do the teal suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney, the inner cities and the woke enclave of Canberra. They are wealthy enough to imbibe the unrealistic and, and utopian ideas of the elites. These people mainly work for either big woke corporates or the government and have little understanding of mainstream Australia. The North Shore of Sydney is a gazillion miles from those on the other side of the Lane Cove River. What the suburbs and the regions pay for electricity and groceries doesn't matter to them. The damage maintaining Indigenous people in welfare and a cultural Marxist victimhood mentality is also impossible for these people to fathom. They just want to feel good about themselves and look down the nose at those of us who they deem to be unenlightened. Now that the voice referendum is over, the political class, which has also been captured by woke ideology, must urgently focus on cost of living and de-woking our schools. If a referendum was held on ditching net zero, which is destroying our economy and driving up the cost of everything, and also on social policy, uh, gender fluid ideology, a referendum like this would pass by a similar 60-40 majority in my view. All that's needed is politicians with the courage to do what Jacinta Nampajimpa and Warren Mundine did, and that is prosecute the arguments in public. 
Well, ADH TV host and creative director Fred Paul joins me now to discuss what the voice defeat means. Fred, uh, the voice was clearly just the latest attempt by the radical left to transform Australia according to its cultural Marxist oppressor victim meta narrative. What does its failure at the ballot box mean for the left's agenda for our nation? Is this a new day for us? Well, it is, Lyle, and I've got to say I love that phrase, uh, Marxist oppressive victim (laughs) narrative or whatever it is. Uh, Very well put because uh, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, I think what the referendum has exposed is just how wide the chasm is between our ruling elites and ordinary Australians. The, uh, one of the most significant results in the entire uh, breakdown of the referendum was that Canberra voted overwhelmingly in yeah. favour. Um, and, you know, I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, they're a bunch of public service. What, servants, what do you expect? They're not just public servants. In modern Australia, we are not run by politi- elected politicians anymore. We are run by these people. And whether they win this referendum or not, they are going to continue this agenda through their, um, through their federal bureaucracies. And uh, we won't, we won't have a, be able to say a word about it. I mean, you can see Chris Minns in New South Wales and Anastasia Palaszczuk up in Queensland. They're both pursuing treaties or, you know, Mm. whatever um, at the state level, despite what the people have said. So, yeah, I mean, the big revelation is uh, there's a big gap between the elites and the ordinary people and the elites couldn't care less. No, they couldn't. But um, do you think Saturday's result means that Australians have been unmoved by these elites and the elites' characterisation of them as unkind, doing the wrong thing, dumb, even racist for voting no? Um, The elites, you know, they've been sulking since Saturday. Does that prove they still don't get it? Well, I think it proves, Lyle, that we still don't get it. As far as the elites are concerned, this referendum confirmed their worst fears, and that, that, and that is that people like you and I are nothing but a bunch of racist rednecks who want the worst for our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Nothing could be further yeah. from the truth, uh, but uh, the truth doesn't matter to these people. All they want is uh, moral indignation, and this gives them a very good opportunity to, um, to do that, to, uh, to feel that. And yeah. it's, you know what, it, it's all about the feels, Lyle. No, it is. And look, I, I mentioned in my editorial that uh, the Tesla drivers pulling up on pre-poll last week when I was <laughs> campaigning in the Teal areas, uh, they just looked down the nose. Their contempt was barely disguised. Um, Fred, the No campaign was characterised by the fearless leadership of uh, Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price and Warren Mundine. They proved John Howard's axiom that politics is the art of persuasion When will our conservative leaders learn that they too can argue on principle and win? Oh, I wish it was today, Lyle. (laughs) I mean, the only thing missing is conviction and courage. Another thing that came out of this is that the left are extremely vulnerable. I mean, Mm, they constantly campaign on the vibe of the thing and, and, you know, who's racist and who's black and who's white and who's oppressed and who's the oppressor. These are, these are concepts upon which you cannot build policies in a democratic nation. So the left is extremely vulnerable and the referendum has shown it. It's, it's not just in, in race relations, if you want to, if, if such a phrase should apply 
in a country like Australia, mm. I wouldn't say it, it should, but it, it applies in the energy uh, policy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all about how, how wonderful it, it is to see windmills blowing on the, you know, uh, or, or solar panels covering hills. It, that, that's, a, that's a warm feeling for, uh, for the left, but as far as policy goes, a conviction politician from the conservative side of politics can smash that out of the park any day of the week, just as this referendum has proved. I reckon that's exactly right, Fred. I reckon, if, and I said this earlier as well, if we had a referendum on net zero and gender fluid ideology in schools, it would, it would as you say, be smashed out of the park. Um, our fellow ADHTV host, David Flint, wrote in The Spectator, I see this week, that this is like Australia's Independence Day. It, it's like, you know, the, the rebels have revolted against the elites. Do you, do you think um, that might be, I hope that's the case. Uh, I guess that'll come down to whether we all go back to sleep again after this victory. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, well, another ADH host, Jason Morrison, said, you know, the the, the left aren't sulking; they're planning their revenge. Yeah, and we have to we have to be ready for it. We have to follow through with this. I think this is barely uh, this is as far as the greater cultural wars goes. This is barely a skirmish. I mean, it mm. was just a, a it was a proposal that was put to the people in a referendum that was always going to fail because it was always ludicrous. But the bigger battles, Lyle, as you and I know, are, are absolutely um, overwhelming. I mean, the first thing we need to do is get rid of race politics, identity politics, here, here. And, mm. and, and, and all that from mm. our education system. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. Uh, yeah. I and mean, the referendum is just something that we, you know, we managed to, to, to cruise through. But the bigger, the bigger problem is our education system and it has to be addressed immediately. It absolutely does. And um, none of us can afford to go to sleep on these cultural wars. We, we've shown we can win. We've got to press home the advantage. Fred, um, Jacinta put a motion to the Senate this week um, for a royal commission into child sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities. It was voted down by Labor and the Greens and by David Pocock. What does this say about their concern for Indigenous children? Well, this just exposes the hypocrisy in absolutely bright light. I mean, this Royal Commission would have been a voice. Yes. For the most disadvantaged people. That's what they were that's what they were arguing for just a week ago. But because they lost, they can't agree to any other uh, any proposal from the supposedly winning side when they say that it's the most disadvantaged people that they care about. This would have solved problems, would have exposed what is going on in these communities. The, but the other thing that uh, Lyle that uh, Jacinta put up, I mean the, the, the headlines around what happened yesterday in the Senate were all about uh, David Pocock and the Greens mm. and Labor voting down a proposal for a Royal Commission into sexual abuse in these communities. She also put up a proposal to for an audit into spending into Aboriginal yes. programs. Mm. And I think that's probably the main reason they voted it down. They don't want this exposed Lyle yeah. because it's they know that, that if it was exposed, that it would bring to an end decades of, of exploitation, of disadvantage uh, by the Aboriginal industry that, uh, that Labor has spent decades building up and they're all friends with them. Yeah, no, that's right. They, clearly, they just wanted a voice for themselves, but not for the voiceless and those who are abused. Um, Fred, just finally, 
Um, you've got uh, some big news about your show next week. Uh, continuing on this discussion, tell us about it. Oh, yes. Well, I've managed to secure an interview with Jacinta herself mm. uh, coming up, and my show will be on uh, at 7 o'clock on Monday night, and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting behind what she's been through and uh, what she hopes for the future. Nobody loves this country better than Jacinta does, and nobody's been through worse as a result. So it's going to be a very insightful interview. That'll be a blockbuster interview. Well done on getting that, Fred, and uh, encourage everyone to tune in on Monday night and watch uh, that interview with Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to unpack uh, what's been an amazing week in Australian history. Always a pleasure, Lyle. Thanks. Well, it was a bad weekend for the radical left. Their attempt to entrench cultural Marxist victimhood in the Australian constitution failed in the voice referendum. And across the Tasman, one of the chief carriers of the global left's agenda, the New Zealand Labor government, suffered a humiliating defeat. Joining me now from Christchurch on the South Island to unpack what happened is commentator and the director of the LifeNet Charitable Trust, Brendan Malone. Brendan, welcome. Lyle, great to be with you. Brendan, um, three years ago, Jacinta Ardern won an outright victory and was fated globally as a rock star of the political left. Um, last year, her popularity started to tank and then she resigned, saying she had nothing left in the tank. Extraordinary for a young woman. What happened? Well, it's that, that's the million-dollar question, really. I think... It's hard to know for certain, but looking at it, I think she had become, by the end of her political tenure, very, very aware of how important her brand was and that it was important to protect the brand, the Ardern brand, because globally it has become a thing. And so I am confident there's no way she would have wanted to have gone into a major election loss because that's what things were spiralling towards. Chris Hipkins, who took over, managed to probably pull it back slightly but it would have been, I think, a lot worse. And her ratings were tanking. And I think also, um, as in regards to, well, I've got nothing left in the tank. She's at Harvard right now on a post-grad program of some kind. She's got a book in the works and other things going on as well. Um, she claimed, look, I'm going to step down and get married. The marriage still hasn't happened. I, I think realistically there were other reasons. And I also can't help but sense there's no doubting that Ardern was a very committed ideologue to the Labor movement. So I think she probably also would have thought, uh, well, the movement has to come first and uh, I don't think I'm any good anymore. So I think there's a combination mm. of factors, but protecting the brand was absolutely one of them. That's extraordinary, Brendan. Um, it seems like she put herself, her brand, ahead of the nation if she really believed the things she espoused politically. But, uh, Brendan, uh, we'll come to Christopher Luxon, her, uh, the new Prime Minister, in a, in a second. But uh, what role did the mainstream media play? Presumably they were working furiously to keep uh, Ardern's woke project alive. Well, th this is absolutely fascinating. I think one thing we've discovered here in New Zealand in a big way, and a lot of people I think have woken up to this during the election campaign cycle here, is just how unreliable the media have become. They had no idea that Labor was going to crash to such a huge defeat. They never saw it coming. And then the day after, they were writing op-eds saying no one saw this coming. Well, us normies did see it coming because we're still connected to life on the ground in the real world. We're not in the ivory echo chamber um, and so, you know, we were aware. Uh, also, they were doing things like uh, very jaundiced reporting and there was clearly bias in one direction over another. And 
But there were even uh, major media outlets who were promoting a particular minor party who had never been in parliament before while ignoring all of the other minor parties who were vying for contention who had never been in, in parliament before. And it was so blatantly obvious, why would you be push-polling and campaigning for one minor party over another? Well, this party was more left-wing in nature. So there was all sorts of nefarious and, and dodgy behaviour going on from our media. And I can't recall ever, I'm almost 50 now, and I can't ever recall a time in New Zealand history where an election campaign has been this badly jaundiced and I would say um, mismanaged and at times quite clearly biased, mm. uh, you know, mismanagement from the mainstream media. Yeah, I've always felt your media in New Zealand uh, are a lot more feral on that uh, left side of the political spectrum than Australia. You're a few years ahead of us, but uh, this is a little bit of a wake-up call, presumably, for them. Does the result represent then a, a repudiation of Ardern's and Labor's woke agenda by, you know, as you say, the normies, the normal New Zealanders? Uh, or is it a case they were just tripped up by their own incompetency? I know they had a lot of scandals and things towards the end. Well, I think I, I've, I've always maintained that there were three factors at play this election and three different groups of people, or maybe even four actually. And the primary groups were those who were angry at what the government was doing. And that includes a lot of the mismanagement. There was serious incompetence that we saw. It's one thing to be an ideologue and very ver uh, vociferous sort of ideologue, but to be an incompetent ideologue as well, I think that, that adds insult to injury. There were another group who were disenfranchised by this government, particularly around the lockdowns and vaccine mandate behaviour. It got very extreme in New Zealand and a lot of people were disenfranchised and felt disconnected and driven out of society by that. And then there was another group, I think, who were petrified of what would happen if this particular party stayed in power because the ideology was really entrenching and getting worse. And then maybe the fourth group is those who had a combination of all three. I think the other thing too is there was no doubt there was a serious um, uh, list of scandals that started hitting the Labor Party in the lead up to the election. There was a, an incident, a notorious incident where a couple of months ago, Chris Hipkins was asked, what is a woman yeah. in a public press conference? And he couldn't answer. So that showed incompetence. Yeah. Uh, about a month or two after that, he was asked, well, what about all the people who were forced to have vaccinations uh, during the COVID period? And he said, oh no, we never forced anyone to be vaccinated, which was a lie. And then on top of that, the, the big one of the really big scandals was when uh, the Justice Minister crashed her car. It appears, we don't know the full story yet, but it does appear drinking was involved, crashed her vehicle into another car, fled the scene, was caught up with by the police about 500 metres down the road and then apparently started threatening the police and saying, well, do you know who I am? You'll have no job tomorrow uh, before being arrested. So the whole thing was just uh, incompetence and scandal and, and blatant dishonesty and it just, it all caught up with them in the mm. end. Yeah, it was a car crash, metaphorically and and uh, in reality. Literally. <laughs> uh, tell us about the new Nationals uh, Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon. Uh, as someone from the corporate world, he was the CEO of uh, Air New Zealand before he went into politics. I assume he'll do the hard things and fix your very broken economy, but will he push back on the radical left's social policy agenda as well? Well, that's two big questions there. Um, economically, I think the jury's out there. I've got no doubt in my mind that he comes from that CEO corporate class and he, he seems to have moved quite proficiently in that space. And so he will probably uh, get on with and sort of navigate his way through the sort of bureaucratic managerial classes that seem to dominate everything far too much now. 
far too much unelected, unaccountable power with our policy wonks and others. And I think, but he'll navigate that world, that bureaucracy world, because he knows that well. Will they deliver good, solid economic reform? Well, that depends really on the global situation. And also in the campaign, there wasn't a lot of creativity, I have to say, shown. I'm an authentically conservative voter and I'm looking for strong, solid economic policies that show vision. And what instead what we got was a flagship policy from National that said, uh, we'll give you a tax cut. Now, 20 years ago, that was probably seen revolutionary. Now it just seems like you're recycling tired old policy. Uh, in regards to social policies, well, again, the jury's out and I'm not hopeful on that because National have stated consistently that they don't really get involved with social issues when they're in power. So what that means is they don't roll anything back. They tend to maintain the status quo. What will be quite important in regards to all of that is how New Zealand First, uh, another minor party, and the ACT Party figure into the coalition. And if they manage to actually get some of their key policy planks uh, into the mix, then yes, there will be some changes, I think, for the better yeah, in, well, on the well, social front. The, yeah, well, tell us about those two minor parties because the counting's still going. Obviously, Luxon's got to form a coalition, uh, probably with ACT. They're a libertarian party, as I understand, and, and of course, New Zealand First is Winston Peters, the, the veteran of New Zealand politics. <laughs> what can we expect um, from from ACT? Um, they're libertarian. Does that mean they're going to push things like drug liberalisation, like our libertarian political parties here in Australia do, things like abortion, prostitution? They're, they're all for all those, you know, f- supposedly freedom-type policies, but they're quite disastrous socially. Is, is ACT like that as well? Oh, very much so. And ACT is an interesting case study in, in, in a party that scaled the heights this election and then crashed and burned. And it's all due to one person, their party leader, David Seymour. And David Seymour is a study in contradictions. He claims to be New Zealand's great advocate of free speech. And then he votes for the safe areas zones, which criminalise free speech within 150 metres of abortion clinics Mm. in New Zealand. And so, you know, there's this absolute contradiction here. He targeted a a fellow conservative, well, not a fellow conservative, but a fellow uh, right-wing MP, a National Party MP, simply because of his views that he expressed on um, pro-life issues. And it was a very outspoken Christian MP. And so he targeted him and with one of his other MPs and and destroyed his uh, very safe right-wing seat. Um, he is a guy also in the, the the highest rating poll just weeks before the election, his party got to 18%. On election wow. night, they ended up with a mere 9% of the vote. And it's all down to him. And basically, he started attacking Christians. He did an interview with Bob McCoskery. I think some of your viewers will be familiar yep. with Bob's work here in New Zealand. Hmm. And he absolutely showed utter disdain there. He started targeting New Zealand first, Winston Peter, paying... Peter's paying for attack ads in public to attack him. Uh, And then he also at one point said, I'm not even sure if I'll go into coalition with National. And a lot of people, all of these factors combined, thought we can't touch this party. Now, New Zealand First, Mm. under Winston Peters, is, I think, a genuinely, authentically more conservative Mm. voice. I wouldn't agree with every policy they've got, but they are in the mould of Edmund Burke, I have often sort of um, said to people that I think actually that uh, Winston Peters, you know, before Trump was a thing, Trump probably modelled himself on some of Winston Peters' behaviours. He's sort of that ordinary, everyday man who is the people's champion. And I think that might be quite an important deciding factor in all of this. So is it possible, Brendan, that uh, a coalition could be formed with either ACT or Winston Peters? Is Is that a choice Christopher Luxon might have once the counting is finished? I think realistically he's going to have to form a coalition with both. 
And what we know at the moment is there's a couple of seats that National do hold. They've flipped them from Labor seats to uh, National seats, but we're talking about very slim majorities right now and the special votes still haven't been finalised. For example, we've got one electorate they hold by 30 votes presently, Mm. another one they hold by 80. These are very slim margins and so they could easily flip back. And I think New Zealand First is absolutely going to have to be part of the mix. And I think it would be prudent for Luxon to bring him in as well. One of the things that Winston has got a very strong and and internationally respected reputation for was previously he had the role of foreign minister and he is highly regarded around the world. A lot of other leaders and politicians say he was really great to deal with. So it would be very wise, I think, right now and with the state of world affairs for Luxon to actually bring him in. And I don't know if he's going to have much choice either. Yeah, interesting. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how all that plays out over the next few weeks. Sounds like um, whilst it's a repudiation of uh, Jacinda Ardern, I I don't know that there's um, a lot of hope that Conservatives and and perhaps Christian voters can take from the result, but uh, time will tell. Just finally, before I let you go, Brendan, um, you've got um, Maori co-governance or some sort of system of co-governance and you've got the Treaty of Waitangi and other treaties. Uh, Indigenous relations there is, is, is a huge issue. And of course, we've just had our Indigenous voice voice referendum last weekend. A lot of people in Australia are wondering, um, how is the New Zealand experiment in co-governance working out and has it created inequality based on race in your political system? And is that something that we should worry about here in Australia? Well, it's a fascinating question. And I think like the Treaty of Waitangi is actually quite an interesting document in and of itself. In the 1800s when it's signed, it's an agreement between the Maori people and the English crown. And it's fascinating because it is one of the only documents of its kind in the world with a crown. We were just too far away and it was too costly to try and fight a land war here. So it made a lot more sense to negotiate and and the French Revolution was happening. There's all sorts of things going on in the world at the time. And so the document itself is pretty simple and straightforward. The problem we've got now is with uh, some rather creative interpretations and reinterpretation, you could say, of what that document actually means and people treating it like a living document that they can interpret how they see fit. And that's where a lot of the issues are arising. It has served our people, I think, fairly well up until the last couple of years. And this big issue, the spectre of co-governance, which actually doesn't really look so much like co-governance, but it looks more like a sort of reflection of those various UN treaties uh, that have been imported into our country. Uh, the the separation that's starting to happen and it well, was driven by Labor, one very clear flashpoint for this was our healthcare system. They abolished all of what we called our DHBs, district health boards, and uh, there was about um, eight or nine of them around the country. Local areas had their own health authorities, basically. They abolished all of those, combined them into one centralised committee based in Wellington, which never works well. But then for the Māori community, they created a separate healthcare system, a Māori healthcare system. And what's happening now is we're starting to hear stories of people ringing up who need um, particular healthcare, maybe an operation or some sort of scan or treatment, and they're being told, sorry, we're not taking any more European New Zealand or non-Māori New Zealand appointments but they, they have spaces for Māori patients. So people are literally just saying, well, I've got Māori heritage, even yeah. if they don't. Yeah. And they're getting in. The whole thing has become rather farcical. And like I said, when you have a, on the one hand, you destroy subsidiarity, destroy local sort of um, control and authority and amalgamate it into one giant committee, centralised committee in Wellington for everyone else. But then you say to the Māori community, we'll give you actual control over your healthcare affairs. It's a total contradiction. 
And uh, yep. yeah, it's it's become extremely messy and divisive. Yeah, no warning bells there for Australia. I think we've dodged a bullet with our no vote. Uh, separatism was certainly the path that we were being taken on. Uh, Brendan, it's, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. That was uh, really fascinating. Really appreciate your insights. And um, of course, we love New Zealand and we'll be watching uh, how your new government, go- government goes uh, with great interest uh, from here. So thanks again for your time today. Happy to be here, Lyle, and uh, let's go to the All Blacks on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, the Wallabies are gone, so yeah, we're, we're all in on the All Blacks as well. <laughs> all right, see you later, mate. See you, mate. Well, the member for Sydney in the New South Wales Parliament and the gay activist Alex Greenwich has introduced one of the most dangerous pieces of legislation ever, his so-called LGBTIQA plus equality bill, which is combined with his so-called conversion practices prohibition bill. This legislation is a wish list, sorry, this legislation is a wish list for rainbow activists seeking, among other things, to enshrine the lie on birth certificates and other legal documents that a male can turn into a female. Two, to compel doctors to affirm a gender confused child down the pathway of dangerous hormones and surgery. Three, to allow a 16-year-old gender-confused girl to have a double mastectomy without parental consent. And four, to allow gay men in New South Wales to obtain a child through commercial surrogacy. It's quite a grab bag. Meanwhile, the Men's Labor government has said it will introduce its own legislation possibly (coughs) before Christmas. It's all a bit confusing, but there's no doubt that Greenwich... Uh, a former leader in the campaign to de-gender marriage back in 2017, has had considerable sway over both sides of politics in the New South Wales Parliament. Now, joining me now to try and make sense of all this is the respected cultural commentator and Toowoomba GP, Dr David Van Gen. David, uh, welcome again to the program. It's great to have you again today. Good to see you, Lyle. David, I really appreciate the hard work you've gone to in um, reading the Greenwich Bill. You've done uh, more than most of us. Uh, It goes way beyond banning practices everyone thinks is wrong, like forcing people to convert their sexual identity or whatever. So what do you think is the real agenda behind this? Yeah, you can dismiss that nonsense about so-called conversion and everyone hates the notion of conversion where it means coercion. Yeah, You know, it's anathema to doctors to ever think that you would make someone change, no matter what it is. It's just all wrong. Um, so that, that's just a smokescreen. As you and I know, the agenda behind Greenwich's bill, as with many other past bills, is simply to use the power of law to impose Mr Greenwich's value system, his preferred structures on the rest of us, and to intimidate any dissent, to intimidate uh, doctors who may not want to uh, have to usher a little child down this harmful, unproven, extraordinarily um, uh, uh, unjustified path of gender transition, or pastors who just want to simply counsel some poor, confused uh, member of their church who who is troubled by unwanted same-sex attraction and just wants to talk and wants to work through their potential um, for, you know, other other ways of living, which, of course, affects many, many hundreds of people. Many hundreds of people take that path of gradual exploration of heterosexual potential if they feel they're same-sex attracted. This is the reality. Mm. You can go to freetochange.org and see some Australian cases. Mm. But you see, Lyle, that's not good enough. Mr Greenwich wants to use the power of law to terrify 
dissenters into complying with his view. Dave, Dave, and then you the deeper you, agenda... Yes, yeah. sorry, you, you mentioned, um, you know, pastors, you've mentioned doctors, the medical profession, counsellors, mm-hmm. psychiatrists as well, psychologists who'd be mm-hmm. affected by this. What about parents? We know that the equivalent legislation in Victoria actually stipulates jail mm-hmm. time for parents who might try and encourage their child to stay away from one of these gender clinics. Yeah, it's not as pointed. The Greenwich Bill isn't quite that blatant. Interesting. But mm. there's still the intimidation. And if parents have got no one they can go to for help, if they go to their GP and the GP says, I'd love to have talk about it, I'd love to help your confused child be comfortable in their own skin, as most kids would be if we just left them alone. But no, no, now, now we've got to usher them down this dangerous path of hormones and potential down the track surgery because that's what the law says. So it intimidates people from doing the right thing. This is what's so distressing. And underneath it all, as you mentioned, while Greenwich was involved in the marriage campaign, underneath it, the agenda is simply the ongoing deconstruction of the natural family, the natural bonds of human life. Because if you take away the the biological truth of man and woman in marriage, which is a natural institution, you've said that mother and father don't matter in parenting. And ultimately, you say, well, what does male and female matter? at all. And that's where we've come to. It's a sort of dementing social process. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That They obviously don't believe the idea of mothering and fathering as a, as a group unit for a child is, is necessary. And uh, it's interesting that he's thrown the issue of commercial surrogacy into this legislation. Now, that, that's been an agenda of the same-sex marriage activists for years. Commercial surrogacy is illegal in Australia. But as mm-hmm. I understand it, um, this bill seeks to legalise commercial surrogacy. Have I got that mm-hmm. right? Or just altruistic surrogacy where no money changes hands? No, no. He wants commercial surrogacy legalised for gay people. Uh, basically, um, if you live in New South Wales, it's illegal to have commercial surrogacy. But he wants it to be legal if you engage someone outside New South Wales. So if some poor Indian woman in a surrogacy farm overseas is engaged by two rich gay men from New South Wales to have their to have their baby, well, that will be lawful under this proposal. I think it'll be rejected. It should be rejected because it's intrinsically unjust to children to allow two men to create a child in the certain knowledge that that child will never know her mother, mm. never see or know her mother. That is an abuse of power by adults, in my mm. view. But they won't reject that because (laughs) they swallowed the Kool-Aid on same-sex marriage, which implies same-sex parenting. But I think the New South Wales Parliament will reject the injustice against women, the exploitation of these poor women overseas. I think that'll be enough to sink this proposal for overseas commercial surrogacy. It's almost quite um, racist, isn't it, David? Um, If I understand what you're saying rightly, and you've read the bill, I haven't. But he's not asking for commercial surrogacy in Australia to be legal or in New South Wales, but simply for the ability to go to places like India and, as you say, exploit a a poor woman. Um, That's, you know, the the idea that same-sex marriage activists think that it's okay to have a commercial market, uh, a rental market in women's wombs and a cash market in human babies, that's quite grotesque, isn't it? Whether it's here in Australia, well, I guess it's it's something that he sees, sees as, you know, perhaps distasteful for, you know, Australians to engage in, but we're quite happy to go to perhaps Ukrainians or, or Indians. Um, it's extraordinary. It is, and I think that's why New South Wales Parliament will balk at that. But I think um, a lot of the other measures, you've, you know, that are in the bill will probably uh, be backed by Labor, and, and in a way they're of more immediate concern because they affect a great number of children, 
and a great number of us. Yeah. Um, now, David, the, the irony of this bill, it, it bans so-called gay conversion, which we talked about earlier, but it virtually mandates mm. that a children's gender must be converted. Um, that there's no alternative if a doctor or a counsellor uh, is presented with a child that uh, they have to, um, you know, take the child down this path. Is, is that essentially what it's saying? Yeah, the only provision, the only exception from being penalised under this law is if you affirm a child down the path of their preferred gender mm. change. You know, this. the trouble is we're dealing with superstitious thinking, magical mm. thinking. Mm. We're dealing with people who probably believe that a, a male can turn into a female. This is not biological or medical thinking. It's a sort of Gnostic mysticism. Yeah. And they might think that a boy can be born in a girl's body. This is, again, magical superstitious thinking, mm. and it, it may be the case that Mr Greenwich thinks that, I don't know, but he certainly affirms that the child who says that they are the other sex, the other gender, is, is that is really their identity, that is what they are, mm. which is sheer nonsense because we know that at least three-quarters of confused kids who think they're the other gender when they're little kids, three-quarters of them we know from multiple studies over decades will simply get over their confusion at puberty. It's as simple yes. as that. They just do. When their body starts telling them what a boy is or what a girl is, they get over their confusion. Yeah, and the, the extraordinary thing now... Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, David, the, the, the activists don't like that statistic being uh, put forward in the public debate. But you, you did it very mm -hmm. powerfully. Mm -hmm. you, you gave a... Um, a wonderful speech at the University of New South Wales Warren College last weekend, and you posed the question, if puberty is the cure for gender distress in three quarters of children, that's 75%, why do the gender clinics now block puberty in these children, thereby blocking the cure? Exactly. The old model, until just 20 years ago, the old model of helping troubled children, seriously troubled, you know, with their sense of terrible disconnection with their body for whatever reason that might arise... The old treatment used to be, look, we know you, most of you are going to get over it at puberty. We're going to support you. We're going to, you know, minimise the distress and so on. And yes, three quarters, sometimes 80, sometimes more than that percent in the big clinic studies get over it. Now, in the last 10 years in particular, there's a new model that dominates this field of gender dysphoria in children. And that is to say, no, if they say they're a different sex, we must affirm them as such. We must believe them. We must then usher them down that path. And the first thing you do is puberty blockers. You stop them reaching puberty. Why? Well, because puberty will be distressing for them. Their breasts will start to grow or their voice will change. Must stop puberty. Well, folks, puberty was the cure for their confusion in three quarters of cases. And what are you going to do? You're going to stop them reaching the point at which three quarters of them would be cured. That is the most bizarre medical approach that I can imagine. Uh, and then after that, we know that only 2% of children who start on get onto the puberty-blocking train ever get off, whereas 75% of children used to get off the gender confusion train before. Those 98% of kids these days go on to cross-sex hormones, which have their dangers, increased blood clots and down-the-track heart disease and bone disease and, above all, infertility for these kids when they grow up and sexual dysfunction quite grave harms that we cause these kids with the best of intentions because we think we're saving them, you know, from mental health problems and suicide. Yep. But the, the most important thing for your viewers to understand, Lyle, 
is that this claim, which Greenwich himself makes, that you must push children down this path for the sake of their mental health and preventing of suicidality, is simply not sustainable on the medical evidence. This is the big news in town. In the last three years, that whole transgender tide has been turned around, uh, not by politicians, but by doctors and by serious clinical studies which show you cannot claim mental health advantage from this current pathway of gender transition. You cannot. You cannot claim reduction in suicidality. The evidence is simply not there. This is systematic reviews of all medical evidence done in Sweden, uh, England, uh, the Florida Medicaid. Mm. These massive reviews of the medical evidence show you cannot claim in improvement in mental health or reduction in suicide by taking children down this path of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Therefore, there is no medical justification for telling parents that this is what we will achieve for your child. None. No, and anyone who does is legally liable. Absolutely. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll bet London to a brick that Alex Greenwich will play the suicide card and is playing the suicide card in this debate. Um, David, you, mm. you also mentioned in your speech that uh, the Royal Australian uh, and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists has walked back from its 2018 endorsement of the so-called affirmative model. And uh, we'll just put the quote on the screen. They say, there are polarised views and mixed evidence regarding treatment options for people presenting with gender identity concerns, especially children and young people, end quote. Now, this is the point you are, you are making. Uh, there's no evidence to support mm. this. Clinicians are walking away from it. And yet it seems like Greenwich is trying, he's realising that it's a house of cards and he's rushing this bill into the parliament to try and achieve uh, a political outcome uh, when the medical fraternity is walking away from this. That's right. The medical fraternity in Australia is, is well behind Britain, where there is a massive medical pushback. And Professor Hilary Cass, a paediatrician, is, is conducting an, a comprehensive review of gender services for children in Britain. They actually shut down the world's largest gender clinic for children, the Tavistock, just recently. They shut it down because it was not based on proper evidence, proper process, proper care for the children, proper exploration of their other mental health problems. It's been shut down, and the whole thing is restarting from a much more cautious position. Now, we're very slow in Australia to reach this cautious position. Um, importantly, we've got a couple of brave paediatricians in Queensland, Lyle. Mm. We've got Dr Dylan Wilson, who said on Channel 7, I don't know if you saw it a, a I few did. weeks back. Yeah, brilliant. He said mm. this, paediatrician, he said, sterilising children, leaving them sexually dysfunctional for the rest of their lives on the basis of, of their declared identity is a medical scandal. Now, I think he's right. And I think, I think gender clinics operate out of goodwill. I think they really believe that giving children puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones is in their interest. I believe that. What hasn't filtered down to the Australian gender clinics and doctors and politicians is that that's no longer sustainable, that claim. Under the available best evidence worldwide, you can no longer claim to say that gender transition will help mental health. You can't. You simply can't. There is no evidence that will reliably support that claim. So you have got here Alex Greenwich misleading the New South Wales Parliament when he said in his second reading speech, quote, strong evidence from over at least a decade 
shows that gender-affirming medical care can reduce depression and suicidal ideation in young trans people. False. He cannot make such a claim based on the actual systematic reviews, and that is the entire emotional ground of his, his assertion that we need to imp enforce gender affirmation. Mm. People in the New South Wales Parliament need to get up to date with the evidence. They need to know that Greenwich is out of date. His claims are unsustainable. And hopefully, brave people like Dylan Wilson and, of course, what the wonderful Dr Gillian Spencer, who's another Queensland child psychiatrist, mm. and she said, we need to take urgent steps to figure out how interventions that are so serious and so poorly evidence-based have been delivered to children across Australia. She says we need a national inquiry. Yeah. And we do. We do. And we must. And you mentioned uh, Moira's, uh, Moira Deeming's yep. motion and Alex uh, Tandick's motion. Look, they're, they're leading it at the moment, but medical professions are responsible. Basically, politicians want what, want what is best for kids and what will do no harm to children. And they'll follow. There'll be an inquiry. This practice will be rolled back to a more sensible, evidence-based uh modest yep. approach to helping confuse kids yep. in the future. Well, well, David, let's hope the uh, New South Wales Parliament, as it considers this Greenwich Bill or, or a variation put forward by the Minns government, uh, takes into account the evidence and that this is no longer yeah. driven by the politics and no. particularly the rainbow political activists. Um, David, really appreciate you taking the time and the trouble to read the detail in the legislation and, and to mm -hmm. give us that granularity today. I'm sure we can um, cut up these clips and put them out on social media and hopefully it'll find its way uh, into the hands of uh, New South Wales parliamentarians before it's too late. Uh, Dr. David Van Gend, really yeah. appreciate your time today. Thank you a lot. Well, I'm really pleased to report that serious progress was made in the past week in this war against girls and women. Here to talk about it all is Kiralee Smith from Binary. Kiralee, welcome again. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Kiralee, let's start with the Why Can't Women Talk About Sex event at the Victorian Parliament House uh, just this last Tuesday. Uh, this was a return to the scene of the crime where many of the same women were abused, defamed and even assaulted as part of a ridiculous Nazi smear back in March. How did it go this time? Look, it went really well. Uh, we did have to heavily vet people coming into Parliament House to make sure that we were all safe. Um, and it was an extraordinary time, Lyle. We heard from um, some local Victorian women um, from the Lesbian Action Group that have been <laughs> cancelled. I think we're going to talk about that a bit more in a moment. Uh, Lee Hazel, who's a detransitioner, and uh, Alexander, who was um, actually knocked unconscious at that Let Women Speak event earlier on in the year. And uh, to hear these local women speak about their experiences and how they've been ostracised, bullied, uh, excluded simply for by by fact of being biologically female and wanting to draw boundaries around that was uh, incredible. Uh, they were a very welcomed addition to the nine of us who have all been uh, speaking around the country and uh, being heavily penalised for defending women's sex-based rights. Yes, and of course, one of those uh, key people, along with yourself, was, of course, Moira Deeming, who, from the event in March, found herself expelled from the Parliamentary Liberal Party in Victoria and uh, demonised as a Nazi associate, very falsely. Now, she put forward a motion uh, on Tuesday after your event 
to have a parliamentary inquiry into the child gender clinics, the so-called affirmation model, which is doing so much harm to children. Now, Kiralee, I've got to do a mea culpa. Last week on this show, I predicted that her Liberal colleagues, the same ones who expelled her for her advocacy on behalf of girls and women, would not support her. Kiralee, I was pleasantly surprised to read in the Melbourne Age that they did back her motion and that I was wrong. Um, what do you think brought about the change of heart uh, in the Victorian Parliamentary Liberal Party? Well, you know, hopefully just common sense and decency, Lyle, because how can you oppose wanting best evidence-based care for children? Like, it, it would just it's just insane. Now, the, the Labor and the Greens did oppose that motion and argued against it, uh, some of them did, but they... Their arguments were so baseless and uh, personal attacks mm. on Moira and anyone, yep. uh, you know, who wants to protect children. Well, Kiralee, let's just on that point, let's have a look at uh, what Moira had to say to those Labor and Greens people who opposed her motion. Is it progressive to let minors have full hysterectomies and go into catastrophic early dementia by the time they're 30 and end up in care homes? I don't think so. I don't actually think that that sounds anything like love. I couldn't believe the amount of non-arguments that I just heard and the abuse and the personal attacks, which have absolutely nothing to do with what is best for children. It doesn't matter about their sexuality. The amount of you that brought up sexuality, it's nothing to do with their sexuality. It's nothing really to do with anything except evidence-based care. What a champion. What a slapdown of the radical left. They're not getting it all their way anymore, are they? Absolutely not. And as Moira and uh, David Limbrick and others said, this is not going away. This debate will continue whether they like it or not, whether they want to be a part of it or not, because this is about the children. This isn't about politics. This isn't about uh, identity. This is about evidence-based care for children and the fact that, as Moira said, there's catastrophic, irreversible, permanent harm being done to these children and so many countries have now paused it or stopped it and wound it right back and this is what has to happen in Australia and we will not rest until that happens. Absolutely and I'd encourage everyone to go check out uh, Moira's speeches, they're on social media, a very, very powerful contribution as we just saw there. Kiralee, as you just said, this debate is not going away. Um, Liberal Senator Alex Antic from South Australia, he has also been active in this space in the federal parliament and he went a step further and proposed a private Senator's bill to ban gender treatments on minors. This is something Family First and yourself have been calling for for years. Uh, why is this move so important? Because, as we just said, you know, children are being catastrophically, irreversibly, permanently harmed. Puberty blockers are being used off-label. Uh, the studies that are being done are showing us that this is not the best pathway for children. And if we want to protect our youth in this nation, then there must be these uh, protections put in place. Now, we know Pauline Hanson's motion to mm. have an inquiry into gender clinic practices was uh, rejected earlier this year. And uh, who knows what will happen when our Alex Antic puts his forward, but I, I can see that they will continue to do this because it is in the best interests of children. Yep. And what have they all got to lose? If this is the best pathway, if the current model is the best for children, what have they got to lose? I think they know there's a lot that they'll lose because it is not best practice at all. Yeah, I think the rainbow political activists must realise that uh, they, there's a day of reckoning coming, that uh, the ideology they've been forcing on the Australian people uh, over many years is coming unstuck big time. Sadly, Alex 
Spencer's motion or, uh, will be voted down because there'll be Liberals who'll vote against it as well. Uh, and they said so in that article in The Australian. But uh, good on him and good on Moira because the issue is getting public debate, which it hasn't had uh, since this first came on your and my radar about seven or eight years ago. So uh, finally, we're making some progress. Just finally, Kiralee, um, you mentioned uh, the lesbian action group that came to the event at the Victorian Parliament. Um, and, and of course, these are fellow travellers with us in this war against women. The Australian Human Rights Commission this week made a crazy ruling. This was a taxpayer-funded government body uh, that said that um, they said that lesbians can't freely associate with fellow lesbians. They have to let biological males in their spaces. Um, it's just crazy. It is crazy. And I look, in one way, they've done us all a favour because they've just shown how, you know, the lunacy that's behind their decision-making. The Sex Discrimination Commissioner has now um, interchanged, you know, swapped words around and said that sex can be changed. Sex is a biological yeah. word that describes you know, gamete production and our reproduction yeah. systems. It's not a word up for grabs that can just be changed, to, you know, to make whatever they want it to sound like. So, you know, lesbians in this country, it's free country. They should have the right to association. It's a same-sex attraction. It's not about a same-gender identity attraction. And for them to be told that they must include males in their meetings and events and gatherings is just absurd. The Australian Human Rights Commission, I mean, their distortion of language is very, very dangerous. And of course, who would have ever thought the Human Rights Commission wouldn't be upholding the human rights of lesbians? Um, you know, this is just a farcical situation we've ended up in. Uh, Kiralee, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, I do want to talk to you at some stage, maybe next week, just uh, for an update on your legal battles. I know you've been in court again, but perhaps we can save that for next week. We're certainly all still with you. But uh, Kiralee, thanks again for that incredible update uh, this week. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for your company. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at Lyle Shelton. You can also follow ADH TV also on Twitter. Uh, and there's plenty of political commentary available on the Family First website, familyfirstparty.org.au. Until next week, keep speaking up.